Welcome to No Hype, the podcast about truth, science, and the future of marketing. Brought to you by your hosts, Allison Dietz. And Brett House. Hello. No Hype is back with our multi-part series about our recent Brave New Worlds 2023 event in Chicago. If you missed our previous episode featuring Joanna O'Connell's presentation about customer obsession and what that means today in, in the advertising ecosystem, you can check that out on demand wherever you get your podcasts. For today's episode, however, we are featuring another session of our fourth Brave New Worlds marketing industry event. It's an event that we host annually for those of you who are not familiar, and it focuses on the biggest evolutions and the disruptions in the marketing world and the things that people are doing to address those changes. So for our session today, we're going to focus on myth busting, examining the actual and future state of identity. This panel was moderated by our very own Brett House, Global Vice President of Marketing Solutions at TransUnion. And with him, he had Matt Clark, VP of Strategic Partnerships at Freewheel, Crystal Wallace, Chief Growth Officer of Platforms at Canesso, Lou Pascalis, Chief Strategy Officer, AGL Advisory, and also the former SVP at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. This panel focuses on the challenges and opportunities facing marketers related to consumer data in today's marketing environment. And so I really want to kick it to Brett so that he can share with us what was the most interesting thing you learned from your fellow panelists? Yeah, thanks, Allison. It was a a very fun panel to run, both from a planning perspective and then being on stage with, with Crystal, Matt, and Lou, all terrific personalities that bounce themselves out. And I'm sure you're all going to really enjoy uh, this session. But what we really tried to do from an audience communication perspective was really start with defining our terms. When we talk about identity and consumer identity, what does that really mean? Uh, And how does that definition vary based on who's defining, who's doing the defining? So we talked you know, what's whatever side of the fence that you sit on in the marketing ecosystem, whether you're Crystal side, the agency side of the world, Matt's side uh, uh, at Freewheel, being on the platform side and the CTV side, or Lou's perspective, which was more brand oriented, each one of them has a slightly different uh, description and definition of, of really what consumer identity was. But everybody agreed on one thing, that there's a need to bring out the human uh, in the data, that oftentimes we focus on uh, the data itself, whether it's the the mobile ad IDs or the cookies or other identifiers that represent or approximate a human being or a household, and we kind of lose sight of the people behind the message. So I think that was kind of how we set the stage, and then it led to this this conversation of well, how do advertisers, marketers, most effectively unify? Uh, and manage this information for multiple uh, internal stakeholders and external stakeholders when it comes to consumer data strategy uh, and where those challenges lie on both sides of those fences, right? Both internal in terms of fiefdoms and incentive alignment. And that actually became a huge focus of the session was really how do you align incentives for internal stakeholders to ensure that everybody's focused on the same goals, the same outputs, outcomes, the same KPIs, uh, and are incentivized in the same way to drive kind of customer-first experiences. And then you've got to go to the other side of the fence, which is the external partner ecosystem, whether it's agency, vendor, platform, data partner. And and when everybody's trying to make a penny on the dollar, um, it can be a very complex thing to do. And so we've got we got sort of a three-legged approach, agency platform uh, and brand 
look at to what that the, the complexities behind that are and what the challenges are and and what they can do um, how marketers can think about this going forward to sort of simplify um, so that you can deliver what people want I think is what it comes down to right people want relevant consistent experiences and they penalize brands and marketers that don't do it and that's only going to increase and I think this panel sort of took a couple of steps towards helping marketers think about um, simplifying and organizing their approach to data governance, to data strategy, uh, to partner management, to ensure that they can do this um, effectively enough to satisfy their most important sort of stakeholders, customers, et cetera. So Allison, what do you think? What, what, what were your big takeaways from that session? Well, I mean, you obviously were in this panel, you know, you had the plan and you had did such a great job moderating the panel and, and, and had quite a few characters on this panel. And I think, you know, it's great to see the different personalities and the different discussion points. You know, I always love hearing Lou speak because he, he never fails to provide some sort of talking point or, you know, mic drop in his, in his um, presentations. And I think the thing that really stuck out for me was talking about how the marketing ecosystem has to evolve. And in particular, his mic drop comment this year was, are campaigns even going to be relevant in 2023 and beyond? And what he really means by that is, you know, the way that we can think about marketing and executing our marketing in these sort of, you know, short-term increments of, you know, start and stop, start and stop a campaign you know, really, we have to turn it on its head and start cultivating the consumer and and really stop thinking about targeting and targeting in this short-term mentality, but really building relationships with consumers for the long-term. And I thought that was so fascinating the way he just, you know, highlighted that perspective because it is a different way of thinking about things for sure. Yeah. And it's and it, and it really reinforced the themes brought about in the um, keynote from Joanna, right? Like how do you actually cultivate relationships versus... Um, simply hit your numbers for the quarter uh, or for the month, right? And that short-termism yeah. is something that I think has affected, you know, everybody, no matter what seat you sit in um, from a marketing perspective. And, and the people that suffer at the end of the day are the, are the customers and the consumers, the, the end recipients of said advertising and content. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, it's it's just such a it's such a different perspective. And, and really, you know, brands who are successful, as we learned from Joanna's presentation, are those ones that can Thinking, think in the long term and think about how do they build those customer relationships. So with that, I think we'll pass it over to the panel and, and let everybody listen in and, and learn something from this incredible group of individuals. Thr thrilled to be here. So I thought we'd get this, start this panel by giving kind of a quick introduction of each one of us, just so you understand where we're coming from, from a perspective when we're talking about uh, this notion of redefining or, or uh, redefining in, in, uh, how we um, think about identity uh, in the industry. So I'm going to start with you, Lou, and we'll move all the way down. Hey, everybody. Lou Pascalis. Uh, I um, spent uh, about Three decades on the client side, running large platforms, uh, E&J Gallo, then American Express, and most recently Bank of America, where I ran marketing, data enablement, uh, marketing, data use governance, media buying, comm strategy, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, spent a year at a trade association, decided that was way too hard, and uh, now I'm running my own single shingle consultancy and having a ball. Awesome. I'm Crystal Wallace. I uh, lead operations for IPG Media Brands, data and technology organization. Prior to that, I was running their um, strategic partnership program across major partner platform programs like TransUnion, Salesforce, Adobe. Those things are driving transformation. 
Um, I've been in this industry for 21 years, as long as my daughter is 21 now. Um, namely running data and tech teams, ad ops, um, data architecture, uh, and the like. My background is actually risk management and insurance, so I, I tend to come from a place of operations, analytics. I love what Joanna said about organizational design, and um, I'm definitely data obsessed. <laughs> Customer obsessed. You're on the right panel. Hi, I'm Matt Clark. I lead the partnerships function for Freewheel, so my team is responsible for forming and managing all our relationships across the ad tech, data, identity, measurement ecosystems with all of Freewheel's platforms. Uh, joined the company as a function of them acquiring my previous employer, Beeswax, which is a programmatic buying platform. Got it. Uh, I'm Brett House. I've been with uh, TransUnion for about three years, came over through the New Star acquisition. I'm a global vice president of marketing solutions. I've been 20 plus years. I kind of gauge that by the age of my oldest son, who's nearly in college, uh, in the MarTech, ad tech industry, companies like Nielsen, New Star, uh, and now TransUnion. So let's get started. So this, this topic, myth busting, examining the actual and future state of identity. I'm a big stickler on defining your terms. It's sort of the Socratic method when you, when you begin a conversation. Like, are we actually talking about the same thing? Um, so that people in the audience know what direction we're going on and the perspectives that you, each one of us represents. So in terms of defining terms, we've all heard a lot of talk about identity and consumer data strategy for decades in the industry. And identity, from what I've seen, tends to be often an amassing of signals, of IDs, of data, uh, uh, log files, et cetera, that we use, that marketers use, to gain a better understanding of consumers or to build consumer profiles. And I put those in quotes because my question to you, and I'll start with you, Matt, is does this definition suffice um, and how would you define consumer identity um, today? Well, I think there's how you define identity in like an abstract ideal sense, which is referring to a known person or a collection of persons in a household. But then there's how, when you go then out into the marketing supply chain and you speak to social media walled gardens or you speak to people who come up through programmatic media in mobile, let's say, you find that they're talking about it from very different reference points, which yep. have to do with the capabilities they've had access to over the last however many years. When you speak to people in email marketing or social media, those definitions are frequently very closely aligned. Yep. When you speak to people in programmatic display or something like that, what you find is ten they tend to come at it from a device as proxy for identity, uh, signals across the web, across mobile as proxy for identity, de device graphs as some kind of statistically informed guess as to identity. And so I think it's, there, there's what we want it to be, and then there's the assumptions or the frame of reference everyone's operating from when you go out and start to have real questions about capabilities, which and I think those two things are still pretty different. Yeah, and that's where the human, I think, gets kind of extracted from this notion of identity. Once you start to see specific individuals talking about it within their own context, right, at their own companies. Crystal. Yeah, I would say it's human and the context and the format in which they are providing. And what I mean by that, um, I think, you identify an audience and whether or not they're dropping, we're identifying them through cookies, through an ad ID, through a mobile ID, through them walking in the store, is however they are giving up who they are and, and, and how they want to deliver who they are to you or, or define who they are to you in that context a moment in time. Then how we transact on that depends on what signal is available and how we surmass that. 
I think when we talk about identity as marketers, it's important that we distinguish between opportunity and expectation. Hmm. So opportunity for us is to understand a need and then market to that need. I like to say our challenge now is that we have to engineer relevance into every interaction because we can no longer buy attention, we have to earn it. And that's what a lot of we talked about on earlier sessions today. So in that context, identity is an enabler, but as Joanna O'Connell pointed out in her remarks, which were, as usual, awesome, I realized I was taking pictures of the same slides I've taken pictures of before. <laughs> Maybe I should just get the deck from her, and it would be easy. That was a completely unique presentation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you, you <laughs> saw it here for the first time. I'm so words. sorry. Um, but no, like so, identity is a great opportunity to make the most relevant stuff for the 12% of people where we have identity. Mm -hmm. But it's a means to an end. It's not a strategy onto itself. And so we need to think about it as when we have those permissions that allow us to leverage the identity, then we need to live up to them. And that gets to the expectation part. If I've already given you my information, if I'm your customer, if I've participated in some zero party data information gathering exercise, then you better damn well not offer me an opportunity to buy a product that I already have. This was a huge challenge for us 15 years ago at American Express where we kept offering people the same product and they're like, we already, I already have this product, right? So when people are opted in, when people are your customer, Identity enables you to perform at the level of expectation they have about relevancy. But when you don't have opportunity, things like context, things like situational awareness, other things you can do in like with, for example, with polling, helps you to understand intentionality. Mm -hmm. And intentionality is actually more important than identity. Got it, which, which ties into this notion of, of relevance, right? And if you understand intentionality, you're more likely, at least predictively, to deliver something that's relevant to a time and place and an experience. So, so, and I'm just gonna throw out some factoids and see how you guys respond to these, because I think it ties to what you just said, what everybody said, is that Forrester said that 70% of consumers expect brand consistency across channels which seems like a pipe dream in some of our, our daily lives, right? And penalize those that don't have it. And she actually threw up, Joanna O'Connell threw up that, that number, the 2.5x growth for customer-obsessed brands, right? It sounds nice, right? It sounds like, hey, we need to deliver consistent experiences, but it sounds like the data management challenges, whether it's, yeah. it's aggregated intent-based data, if it's one-to-one -one individual identity data, managing all of that across a marketer's both internal worlds and their external ecosystems is incredibly difficult to do. So how do brands more effectively collect, use, and, and manage this data in a way that they can actually deliver relevant experiences? I just, I don't want to be a little Debbie Downer in this, but I'm a little worried about this with RMNs and every, everyone balkanization of, of the internet where everybody now has their own identity platform and it's very hard for marketers to stitch across that. I think the consumer expectation was created in the era of social media where large platforms really could you know, see a large swath of interactions and use that in their algos to create more relevant experiences, which raised consumer expectations outside of those platforms. And I think we're entering an era where it's gonna be very hard systemically 
to orchestrate experiences across all these different frontiers. I, I don't know what the solution to that is. I think that's a good thing. I think we need to get back to brilliant basics and, and you know, go back to this notion of a digital twin. The way we treat people offline, if I don't know you, if I haven't earned a right to even know your name, I'm going to act differently. Um, I'm going to say, hey, we got this promotion or what have you to draw you in. And it's balancing those push-pull tactics, you know, and, and, and you still, again, context is so important. And identity, until I know who you are, then I need to serve you and drive meaningful awareness. I need to drive a perception. And, and you're gonna give me a, a signal in terms of now engaging with me, so now I understand that I'm driving some type of perception change, and then go and continue that relationship. Um, I think brands and, and marketers and, and the ecosystem that we live in, there is a gap between strategy and execution. And what sits in that middle of the gap is capabilities. Um, and, and misalignment, you know, and we have to kind of, there's different things in, that we can do to, to build towards, you know, um, mining those gaps, even despite deprecation of a cookie or identity or not being able to quote unquote connect. And we never have really been able to do it anyway. Sure. Like, so. Well, I think one, one point that I think you're both making is that the fragmentation here is, in, in some ways it's an opportunity because you have the ability to deploy identity-based or identity-aware marketing tactics in many more places than you used to be able to do that, right? It used to be that you had to use very broad swaths of geographies and content as this proxy, like two or three orders removed for the identity of the people you're reaching. Now you have the capability to reach actual known consumers in all sorts of different ways, but you have this incredible fragmentation in how you actually do that tactically. And I think that's made it very expensive for marketers and their agencies to deal with each of those media footprints in the way that's like most appropriate for how to use identity there. And the, the, the challenge is if you retreat back to sort of lowest common denominator and treat them all the same, you leave a lot of value, like potential value on the table by not engaging with each one according to its unique kind of capabilities. You know, you bring up a really interesting point there, if I could just build on it for a second, because you kind of turned my head on it, Matt. You know, we, when we do have identity that tracks back to something that we have a, a history on, we tend to fall back on what I would call long-term customer logic. Oh, this person is a high net wealth customer, we want to target them with a Merrill Lynch product. When in reality, we're many different people and short-term logic, short-term signals of intent, um, short-term context are probably a better predictor of what we should put in front. So maybe breaking identity across the platforms forces us to be more relevant in the moment. I think that's the point you were both making and I'm kind of kind of warming up to it. Well, and, and is there a notion, this notion of consumer profiles or the golden record within an organization, is that is that a complete myth? Is that even achievable? So that you can not only, you can collect that intent data from a short-term perspective, plus you have this persistent data like household address, Mo email. Most, well, clients, most client side segmentation is done every couple of years mm -hmm. with very fixed segments. And if you're in this one, you can't be in that one. So you can't be a multi-homeowner and a world traveler. Right? Uh, can't be both of those things. So I think they're very binary, and I don't think they've been helped. I think five years from now, when all the hoopla around generative AI is actually working to our advantage, we can have real-time dynamic segmentation at scale, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I, I think we're slowly getting there with clean rooms, CDPs, drink up. Um, 
And, and of course, because of what's going to happen with cookie deprecation, it's probably going to set us back a little bit. But I do think that if you bring data-led segmentation to the forefront of your strategy and you infuse that all the way, and someone said it, like it needs to be, measurement needs to be a part of planning and optimization. So then you're always measuring, measuring the right thing, therefore enriching that golden customer record or profile that you end up getting to that end state. Um, well, and it uh, seems like that feedback loop is yeah. where things kind of break down, right? How do you take the exhaust from what you're actually measuring, some action, some conversion event, some point of sale, and get that agilely back into your media planning process so I don't get advertised to some, for something that I, that I recently purchased, right? Which is, and that follows me around for a couple of weeks. Um, so, so, yeah, so challenges, let, let's talk about internal challenges within an organization. And I think that's a huge, we see this a lot, right? Data silos, organizational fiefdoms, uh, incentive misalignment, which we talked a lot about uh, in our prep sessions. Um, I think that's an important thing to, to, from a dimension uh, of understanding how we manage data consistently. First, you got to get your data house in order within an organization. And then I think we should move to the external world of partners, vendors, middleware. But let's start with some of the internal challenges and what you've seen from a client perspective. Matt. Yeah, the, the, the previous panel on streaming talked a lot about frequency as just this basic building block yeah. of like an identity aware way of treating the consumer with respect and, and having the consumer have an ex the experience they want to have. And there were a lot of good points made about technology and, and various other gaps there, but some of the gaps are just incentive gaps because if you if you walk through the advertising, like the life, the life of an ad dollar, right, and how it goes from client brief to insertion order or to instructions put into a DSP or what have you, at many of the points along that supply chain, the two people who are talking to each other are both incentivized for scale. Yeah. They're both incentivized to spend all the money and to go get some more money and spend that too. Yeah. And, and, and this is within an organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? This right. could be two different teams. Yeah. You could have your, your linear television buying team yep. and your digital advertising yep. team. And, and, right, and, and, so what, and what anybody who's ever worked in ad operations knows is that the number one way to improve scale is to start removing constraints, mm -hmm. right? Just let's remove some constraints. Let's relax a frequency cap. Let's not do frequency capping. Let's remove an audience targeting constraint, et cetera. And so what you end up with is a supply chain that's incentivized against the experience that the consumer is trying to have and the experience that a CMO, SVP of marketing, thinks that the consumer should have and thinks is, is ideal for return on ad spend. And that's a, that's a big challenge that like maintaining the right incentives through the supply chain is critical if you want the people who are actually trafficking the ads or asking the client to, to up the budget or whatever to keep in mind the outcome you want. Yeah, and that's an illustrative example of exactly what Joanna said about where CEOs, what is it, 70, 80% of CEOs believe that they're customer obsessed across all of these different criteria, whereas only 57% of CMOs agree. CMOs agree. So there's mis misalignment within the organization. So Crystal, why don't you? Yeah, take, that, oh, that okay. misalignment is real, and I live that at both American Express and Bank of America, where if you, if you separate the world of the client between the what and the how, this starts to make sense. At the top of the house, everyone is singing from the same hymnal. We want to increase customer long-term value. Mm -hmm. The C-suite loves that. The management team that loves that. The CFO loves that. And it all sounds good. And then the marketer goes back, the CMO goes back to her media team and says, hey, they want to increase customer long-term value. And I'm like, well, 
here's the thing. You've got four different lines of business, and they have very different views on what that is and what the KPIs are we need to optimize. And half of them are screaming scale, scale, scale. And there's no, you never hear the word quality. We want quality impressions. And, and, and a big part of the problem is, and I used to live this. I, I, you know, Chatham House rules are in effect, but the president of the retail line of business at Bank of America used to call my head of performance marketing on a Thursday and say to her, you know, this is like two levels above me talking to two levels below me. And I'm like not part of the conversation. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm still in therapy about that. But um, I just need more landings on the page because I have a meeting with our CEO on Monday and I have to show on my scorecard that we achieved, you know, eight bajillion landings on the page. And, and she's like, well, do you just want me to challenge, uh, uh, target people with pulse and respiration? And he's like, just one will suffice, you know? Um, but this is real. And so everybody's in agreement, including this guy who's on the management team. We want to increase lifetime value. But this week, I just need to get enough landings on the page, which is a ridiculous metric. Adverse but it's the scorecard. It's the short-term thinking, yeah. right? It's, it's the profit. It's short-term. It's the reactivity. And it's, it's really not being aligned to really the business outcomes and setting up kind of a, a framework for here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's how we do it. And, and making sure from the top, all the way down that everybody's aligned to that. And you, to me, a, a, a testing, driving a test and learn culture is really important. We all talk about it. I don't know how much we're doing that. We do not have dedicated always on marketing dollars for test and learn. No. We're in the age of AI where you got to feed and train and constantly you know, feed that system, but we operationally aren't doing that. So um, absolutely right. And, and, and just, what do you think the outputs of that would be? I mean, so just, just some examples of test and learn in terms of what am I going to learn from an insights perspective in terms of, of um, with, your, with your control am, versus your, your test? Yeah. So what are my dependent variables versus independent? Like, what are those leading indicators, you know, based on, I mean, again, we talked about consumers are fickle. They're constantly changing and evolving. So how can I pivot and move at the speed of life um, without kind of having something that allows me to pivot when that time comes? And so I think measurement frameworks are really important. You got to have good use cases, data strategy. What am I solving for? What is my, what is my business imperative this year? I also think from an operation standpoint, you know, start thinking again about zero-based costs so that we're not incentivized to, if I don't spend all the money, I don't get it next year. Yeah. Um, and, yep. and yeah, sp sponsorship, like you, you, you have to, we need, it, we need to find a way. The world has changed. There's an acceleration of change. Um, and I think everyone, every client should be going through their own transformation. So yeah, revisit your partnerships, revisit your agencies, revisit their workloads and how they are addressing truly what you need to drive that relationship with that consumer and, and become customer. I want to double click on that, that notion of zero-based planning, right? Do you think that that gives agility to the marketer, right? The ability to optimize and adapt at a more rapid pace maybe break down some of the fiefdoms and the silos and the internal disagreements? I think it gets at the heart of a question, which is going to be, I think, very provocative for, for folks in this room. No. Our, our, <laughs> I'm trying to be. Um, but You're doing good. You're good. <laughs> are campaigns relevant in 2023 and beyond? Aren't we in an always-on relationship with our customers? Yeah. Campaigns are about us. 
Mm. right? Experiences hopefully are about customers, consumers, potential customers. We should have a set of objectives that we need to, uh, that we need to um, deliver against all of our businesses and then design always on experiences. We would, we would have situations in my past where we clearly saw someone over here was in this ultra high net worth category that should be a private banking target, but they weren't in market. And I had no flexibility to go and put something in front of this individual. And again, this is all happening at real time and programmatic, but I'm, I'm you know, trying to make it tangible. We just didn't have anything and we had no ability to, oh, we can't borrow from Peter to pay Paul. No, 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 no. We're one enterprise with one ultimate you know, accountability to our shareholders. Mm -hmm. And yet, because of the way campaigns are built today, you couldn't do that until fourth quarter when they were in market. I, I think a good, uh, the rise of retail media networks and as a channel, but you have your, your merchandise sales teams within an organization, not talking to your brand marketers, but yet trading off you know, tit for tat. So taking brand dollars, putting them over in trade, and then, but yet, my, 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 my co-op won't even give me the data that I need to understand my customer and what they're buying. So yeah, there needs to be a fundamental change uh, in mindset on how we operate. I think, Lou, Lou, like a lot of the implications of what you're talking about, right, is somewhere else at Bank of America, yeah. there's a group of people spending tens of millions of dollars on identity and data collection infrastructure. Right. And the implications of everything you're talking about is that they can't realize the same return on that asset, that investment, that capital expenditure that they could if the head of performance marketing wasn't focused on an outcome that was unrelated to the things you're going to learn from all that identity work. Yeah. And, and I think one of, the, one, of the thi one of the things that we need to focus on in order to help those identity-based assets be more valuable is providing people like that with a different high-frequency, easy-to-measure like, outcome mm -hmm. that is better than just get me some landings on the pitch. Yeah. Because people will always bias towards, well, I want to control something. I need to show a result week over week over week. And in wealth management, you know, sales cycles are long and there's nothing to show. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things I'm most excited about, just to put in a plug for like streaming media, is that you can't... <laughs> no plugs. Well, is that, that identity has a better chance of working, say, in connected TV than it ever did in web-based banners because you can't click on most of the ads. And so the, like, the ridiculous metric that everybody uses to optimize is just not there. And yep. so it has a more of a fighting chance of working there because there isn't something that's like cheap and easy available. Yeah. So how, are you how do you measure how it's working now? Right, from that, that exposure, right? It's an engagement of viewability metric. Yeah, well, I think identity is one. You can, you can certainly use those, right? But identity it has the potential to be this bridge between exposure and some kind of an event that happens post-exposure, right? And the challenge is how do, we, how do we give that to the people that are incentivized to only think about what can I show week over week? What buttons can I push? What levers can I pull to show that I'm having an impact on the result here? Because waiting for the post the post-campaign or quarterly study isn't enough. Yeah. The capability is far better than it was when we transacted on linear TV for the first half of my career. Um, because you're actually delivering in a digital-like environment and there's a lot more um, signal that you can get down funnel that you can append back and you know the, 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 the nature of the real time of it. I wanna build on something you said, Matt, though. The, the, I agree with everything you said about a common goal the single biggest barrier to what we are trying to do, the, the, the evangelism that all of us in this room are trying to sell, is legacy incentive structures. Until we actually, and I don't know how we do this, attack legacy bonus structures inside of clients, 
We're gonna be in these two worlds, selling the future and living in the past. Mm -hmm. And, yep. and, it's, uh, and that's probably the hardest pattern. thing to do of all of the internal challenges we talked about, the, the capabilities, the data warehousing, the incentive, and, and oftentimes political realities within organizations that are based on incentives. Yeah. If, if, if I told you you could make $12 million if you ignored what you believe this you know, year and just did what we know, yeah. you'd be tempted. You've got college education coming up, tuitions. Where do I sign? Yeah, right. Where do right, I right. sign? And that's literally <laughs> the problem. All the rest of the stuff is symptoms of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so now, so we've talked about this internal challenge dimension. Let's go, let's look at the external uh, world, right? We've seen there's a lot of middleware, the ad tech, martech ecosystem in between sort of brands and the consumers they're trying to, to interact with, right? We've talked about, you know, how there's breakdowns in the, in the data feedback loop when you're, when you're exposing some, something to someone. The, that information may not be coming back and managed in a way that allows you to connect the dots or link, right? Um, and then the agency ecosystem in terms of how do they react to the brand's needs around their customers quickly, effectively, through the planning process, et cetera. So let, let's you know, get opinions around the, the group, and let's start with you, in terms of some of the key external ecosystem challenges from all that all those partners we just talked about. Yeah, well I think they go back to your original question about how do you define identity, yeah. which is that when you go around and you ask a bunch of people in the ad tech ecosystem a question that ends with or has the word identity in it and then a question mark, you're going to get an answer based on their own capabilities, what they know maximizes their own objectives, etc. And uh, that may or may not be what you as the marketer are actually trying to achieve. Um, it, it may be the case that when you said identity, they heard device graph. And when you said yeah. deterministic, they heard maximize scale. Mm -hmm. um, and, <laughs> and that plays out, right? Or it may be the case that you're talking to somebody about how you want to do a big identity-based effort in connected TV, but all of their legacy product development and success came out of programmatic web. And so they're just going to take the tool set they have there apply it to the next problem and assume it's going to work when a lot of the assumptions that was based on are different. And so I think yeah. uh, one of the biggest challenges for marketers and agencies is really digging in and, and getting clear on when they used a term, what did they think that term meant and how was it being deployed so that they know, okay, I'm going to bring this expensive identity-based asset to bear. Is it actually going to be used the way I think it's going to be used or am I going to get a much different scale accuracy trade-off than I thought I was getting when I when yeah. I engaged. So they're going to align their, their incentives based on their capabilities, their internal capabilities, and what they can actually sell to client A, B, or C, right? And they may, might be misaligned with the client that's trying to drive LTV, for example. So Crystal, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go from the privacy landscape, the fragmentation thereof, the privacy landscape, and, and the lack of, I think, for me, um, understanding of what that consent management process looks like across the supply chain. Um, and we, we need to solve for that. Um, that's incredibly hard. But also, even with that, is, is this juice of, or, or this pursuit of identity worth the squeeze? Is it worth the risk, um, given kind of the rising tides of uh, the punitive nature of, of regulation coming in the United States? Yeah. And doesn't consent management, just by definition, this just popped in my head, um, directly contradict this notion of scale? If you're trying to scale your audiences and you're relying on sort of an opt-in, authenticated process, yeah. right? In the same way that, um, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. 
Um, stealing a car uh, raises your cost of acquiring, uh, lowers your cost of acquiring a car. <laughs> Consent management is not a choice. It's yeah. not something that we can admire. I think again, you know, I feel like Joanna's sales rep up here, but um, you know, she framed it up very well. I mean, we are we are at a global reset of how we do business, and we have to build ethical first, mm -hmm. right? And when you do, you're unassailable because um, you know. Uh, Regulation right now, we're struggling with um, on a state-by-state -state level, but one of the panelists earlier talked about on a city-by-city -city level, mm -hmm. and like you can see that coming, right? Um, and if we don't build a, a durable, agile consent framework, we're gonna constantly be blowing up our tech stack, and that's very expensive inside the client. Um, and, and who's accountable for that? Who's accountable and owns the consent process, right? Is it on the brand side? Is it on the media owner side? I right, is it a combination of the two? You've got risk and compliance partners in a large enterprise that are you know, helpful in helping you set principles and start to inform policy that comes from those principles, but their expertise at execution is very limited. And mm -hmm. so you have to have a coalition of, of like, you know, if you really think about it, the 20-something programmatic genius that's placing 56% of your digital budget is now setting enterprise policy because they're not directly connected to the ESG framework that the CEO talks about all the time. They're not really worried about some of these other issues. Again, they're focused on performance. And so you've got to bring their expertise from a fingers on keyboard standpoint all the way to the risk and compliance team with some executive leadership. Two of the, two of the big things that we're doing wrong as marketers in this space is we're outsourcing too much of this to the wrong people either the agency where you give a very vague and ambiguous brief and hope they'll figure it out on consent, mm -hmm. um, or you know, some people internally who are you know, the transactors who, by the way, as a side hustle, should think about what they're doing from an ethical and policy standpoint. <laughs> they don't understand ethics and policy. You know, uh, and the other thing that we're doing as, as um, marketers is we're sending procurement teams to the agency separately and I literally had this experience at American Express where the procurement person said, look, don't listen to Lou. You need to deliver 10% more impressions this year for 5% less spend. That's the only goal you should be focused about. Scale, scale, scale. Yeah. And you know, I, I lost my you know what when I'm getting, you know, someone is going to my agency and saying, don't listen to me. I, I made a federal case. And, and Crystal, is this relevant? Is, have you seen this experience? Have you dealt with the lose of the world? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we have sins too. They, the client is not, you know, the client has a lot of culpability here. Yeah. What I would say. Well, so what's going to happen there, right, is something's going to get sacrificed. Either the consent practices that you think should be followed are going to get sacrificed, or something else will be sacrificed, consumer experience, et cetera. Any, any you know, impediments to gathering consent from, user, from consumers will result in less scale. Yeah. Like just you, more friction in the process, you will have less scale. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that everything needs to be deterministic all the time. Yeah. Right? Like the, what we're after is things working better tomorrow than they worked today, than they worked yesterday. And so if we're going to do things that are probabilistic, if they can be informed tomorrow by more opted-in users who we know, like who we have identity around, than yesterday, then that's a net good thing, right? And pursuing perfect, there's not a brand alive that believes they're gonna have 100% of their current customers and prospects opted in to share data all the time. If they do that, that's a delusion. And so what you're after is incremental improvement. Yeah. You could do that though, um, 
you know, it'd be fun to ask every one of your clients next time you're sitting down with a marketer, what's your zero, zero party data strategy? Exactly. And wait. Okay. Don't yeah. explain it. Yeah. See how they talk about it. I mean, you know, Brad Feinberg, who's probably sitting somewhere over there last I saw him, could explain this to anybody. Zero party data is a great way to actually build that consent. It's a gateway drug. And everyone should be building a zero party data strategy right now to start that yeah. engagement. And, and Crystal and I were talking about the Bear example, the Home Depot example, yeah. which was you know, a, a delightful consumer experience, right? Where you're sort of being asked to, to show your preferences as opposed to kind of this creepy AI engine in the back end knowing your preferences ahead of time, even though you're a prospect. Right, and then allowing you to go through this flow and sort of choose what direction you want to go with it. And that should be a KPI, and then that's what you model on because those are going to be your long-time valuable customers, your advocates, those people who are really kind of uh, your ideal. You've customer. helped me at a time of need, yeah. right? You know, with something that is meaningful to what I want. I don't want to be advertised to you for the next six years simply yeah. because I was painting. It'll right. help you along that funnel too. Like, okay, is this if they're provide if they're engaging at this step of the process? Here's who I want to go and build more lookalikes after. Yeah. And so, how do you scale? I, I mean, Crystal, how do you think you scale that type of approach? Right, a zero party data approach. And we've got 35 seconds left. Um, it, it build So, how do you make a zero party data strategy work? It has to be part scale. of your planning optimization buying. You have to have a data strategy, build use cases, and think about the experience. Eat your own dog food. As a consumer, how do I want to engage in this brand? What makes sense? And build that experience. Again, that Baird's example is so beautiful because it's not, um, it's not predicting. It's really tailoring based on the inputs of that person. To choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. I would just add on to that one thing based on that bear example and everything we talked about today. You got 10 seconds. Stop targeting customers and start cultivating them. I love it, yeah. There we go. We can end with that. Drop Thank it. you. Thank you, panel. Wow, that was such an incredible panel. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Brett. I mean, I think the ability to conduct that panel and to get all those folks talking and engaged and, and really sharing some really good insights, I think you really were able to you know, bust the myth that identifiers are something of the past, but in fact, we have to think about what does the future of identity really look like and how does that fit into our overall strategy of building more relationship-based marketing with our consumers and how that can help enable that and act as an enable for that future. So thank you so much, Brett. I really enjoyed it. And um, hopefully everyone else did as well. And if you want to check out the, the panels or the sessions on demand, you can do so at bravenewworlds.transunion.com and, um, and have a listen and, and be on the lookout for future episodes featuring Brave New Worlds as well here on No Hype. Thank you. Thank you.